They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and he taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Thank you, Jack, and thanks for the for the music. And it's so great when all those folks can can be back in here with us once again. And thanks to the folks upstairs, up in the crow's nest, to uh, help us to be seen and heard. We appreciate all of you. One of the most frequent reasons given for the problems and difficulty that confront us today, and it's been going on for a long time, is an expression I still hear, maybe not quite as often, but maybe that's because there aren't as many opportunities to be out and around people. But the expression, there is a lack of respect for authority. And we hear it all the time. I've been hearing it most of my life, certainly in my Four plus decades of ministry, I've had teachers and others tell me, well, there's just no respect for authority in the, in the classroom was a common complaint. Dr. Cecil Myers, and some of you may have known him, may remember him. He died a few years ago. He was a pastor in our conference who was one of the great storytellers, one of the great preachers of the, the last century. He used to tell a story about a school teacher who taught at the elementary school level. And it seems that this teacher had to leave the room for a few minutes one afternoon. And when she came back to the room, everyone was seated in their desk. And they were all quiet. And they were all going about their work. They were given assignments. And it startled her class. She inquired, I've never seen you like this before. What's going on? You may have heard this old story teacher one little fellow squeaked and he kind of raised his hand you promised that if you ever caught us quietly seated in our desk and going about our work that you would drop dead (laughs) oh oh mercy (laughs) in days gone by i've always heard and, and it was true in my experience the school teacher the classroom was an extension of parental authority and Most of the time, we would never try anything at school that uh, we knew we could not get by with at home. There have always been some rascals in the classroom. There were days, not many, I don't think, but there were some days when I numbered myself among those rascals. And I suspect some of you did too, if you were being honest with us. But I knew where the lines were drawn, and I knew the lines that I crossed at great risk to myself and sometimes, most of the time, I avoided those. 
But education is not the only area where questions of authority are raised and a lack of respect for authority being blamed for the difficulties. It's evident in, in many homes and it makes for some anxious moments at home. And maybe it has in your house, maybe growing up, maybe when your kids were growing up or grandkids, maybe in your house right now. I don't believe, however, that the blame can always be placed on rebellious children. I used to hear that expression a lot, not so much anymore, but perhaps it's still there. But beneath the layers of anger and rebellion, many times there's a voice crying out for attention and, and crying out for some guidelines and some direction. heard about the young boy several years ago who was riding a bus in a large city and his mother was sitting beside him and the boy kept hanging his head out the window. And he knew how dangerous that was. He knew what could happen. And his mother just seemed not to notice or not to care. And finally the little boy spoke up and said, Mom, aren't you going to stop me? Children, young folks, all of us to some extent need authority figures that we can respect, that we can model our lives after, that we can look up to. Persons who will set limits. Whether it's education or the home or business and industry or national, international relations or the military, everywhere we turn, questions of authority are raised over and over again. And the lack of respect for authority is blamed for more problems than we could count in our time together today. But one possible explanation, I believe, for this seeming lack of respect for authority could be the way in which a little—excuse me—in which legitimate authority is often abused. When authority, which is defined as the right or the power to give commands, enforce obedience, take actions, or make final decisions. When that becomes authoritarianism, which is characterized by unquestioning obedience to authority as that of a dictator, rather than freedom or judgment or action, we've got real problems. And when authority is used for selfish gain as opposed to the good of others, and when that authority is being abused, whether it's in the privacy of one's own home or in capitals, national capitals around the world... It's a difficulty. It's a problem. The question of authority, including the lack of it and the lack of respect for it and the abuse of authority, it's a very live question for the church of Jesus Christ today. It always, it always has been. So I want us to look at a passage from the Old Testament. Actually, the lectionary for a passage for today, we didn't read it. I'll, I'll just summarize it a little bit. And then a passage from 1 Corinthians, which is also one of the lectionary passages. And then don't give up. We'll get to the gospel lesson that Jack read a moment ago and talk about authority as it's outlined in that passage. But Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, Moses is speaking to the people about the Lord God raising up a prophet like himself among them. The word prophet from two Greek words, which means to speak forth, to tell forth. A prophet in biblical days was one who spoke clearly and boldly the word of God. Not a prophet like we think of it sometimes today, like a fortune teller or someone who reads palms, not that kind of prophecy, which is, I think, not very real. But prophecy when it comes to proclaiming what God would have us to say and do. Moses is considered to be the first and the greatest among the Old Testament prophets. 
men and women whose authority to speak for God came directly from God. What God demanded from God's prophets was loyalty to God's word. And what God demanded from the people was obedience to the word of God. Now, what does all this prophet talk have to do with questions of authority for the church today? It has a great deal, I think, to do with these questions when you begin to consider the role of the appointed or the licensed or the commissioned or the ordained clergy, other leaders in the church as well. But certainly the role of the pastor in the church is in some ways or should be in some ways similar to that of the prophet in the Old Testament proclaiming the word of God. And there have always been examples of abuse. And we know of some of the more flagrant examples of that. Most folks my age and even younger, if you mention Jim Jones or if you mention Guyana in 1978 and 900 folks committing suicide at the urging and under the leadership of this false prophet, you understand how, how difficult things can be. Most examples certainly don't rise to that level. But sometimes those awful things happen in God's name. I remember clearly when I was ordained an elder at the North George Annual Conference in 1979, so long ago in some ways. And I placed my hand on an open Bible. And Bishop Cannon, William Ragsdale Cannon, said to me, Take thou authority as an elder in the church to preach the word of God and to administer the holy sacraments in the congregation. It was a high point in my life and in my ministry. I can still hear his unmistakable voice and remember kneeling there in Glen Memorial Church. I'm still growing, hopefully, in my understanding of what pastoral authority is, is all about. And it's the issue I take seriously. I believe that sometimes folks tend to overestimate the authority of a, a preacher or a pastor. You know of some examples of that. When some people find out I'm a pastor or I'm a preacher, their language, their attitude, their demeanor changes. It's almost like they believe that I have it within my authority to either send somebody to heaven or condemn them to hell. I'd like to be able to say to these folks, and sometimes I have, it's not my opinion that matters. It's not what I think I might know. It's what God knows for sure that matters. I remember this authority thing and the way people change their behavior sometimes. When I was serving a church in Milledgeville, Georgia from 1984 to 1990, the barbershop that I used there and the two barbers that worked there, I remember them clearly. And there were always some older guys, probably about my age now, but they seemed so old at the time that hung out in the barbershop. And when I went to the barbershop and opened the door, the first barber to see me said in a very loud voice, it's good to see you, preacher. And that was a signal to the other folks in the barbershop. And they would begin to put their magazines under the chairs and they would be very careful about the jokes they were telling and that kind of thing. And uh, it's kind of funny to watch. Questions of pastoral authority go way back, back to the days of Moses. Yet, they need to be kept on the front burner today. You lean on the word of God as a guideline for your life, the written word of God. And you should be able to have confidence in the authority of the one that God has called to proclaim that word and to make it known.
Now, moving to that New Testament passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, still thinking about authority, and and we're on our way to Mark's gospel. We'll get there this morning, I promise. But Paul in chapter 8 is discussing a particular situation that has arisen in the church and has become a problem for Christians. Outsiders, Gentiles, the word used in some translations is pagans, participated in offering animal sacrifices to their gods, gods with a a little g. And part of the meat was burned on the altar, and the rest of it was sold or given away in the market. Some Christians had no qualms of buying such meat and taking it home and preparing it for their families for their own consumption, while others were horrified at the idea, for it seemed to them that it was a pagan practice to be eating this meat from an animal that had been offered to an idol, to a a false god. Paul says no one should object to meats being offered to idols for his point was they don't exist. There's no power there. Those gods are not real, so don't worry about it. If if you want to eat the stuff, eat it. God is the one and only true God, the Lord God of Israel. However, he said, if some brother or sister in the faith is offended by you eating that meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, then maybe you ought to not do it. Don't be a stumbling block for those folks. Don't get in their way. Maybe their faith has not developed to the point where your your faith has developed, and it might offend them. So for their sake, let it go. And so we raise the question of a Christian's individual authority. The stronger, more mature Christians felt contemptuous toward those who got upset about folk eating meat sacrificed to idols. They felt that because they had the knowledge of God, they were superior, and they had the authority to do anything they chose to do within the life of the church, within the community of faith. But Paul was warning them that this kind of knowledge, apart from a real love of God, has a tendency to puff us up to stroke our egos, to to turn us into narcissistic Christians if we're not careful. The apostle says that if we love God and are known by God, it's that knowledge that gives us any authority that we might have, not the authority of a superior over an inferior, not the authority to condemn and to judge other Christians, other folks, but an authority based on love which frees us from a belief in idols, yet at the same time would cause us to do things, to sacrifice things, to give up things that might harm other folks as they were developing in their faith. That kind of authority that cares more for others than it does in getting our own way and having everything as we think it ought to be. We have a certain authority as disciples of Jesus Christ. The bottom line, though, is that it's an authority to build up, to pick up, to care for, to nurture other people, not an authority to do harm, to condemn, to judge, to hold others back, to tear others down. Our authority comes from our master, but it's not the authority to be masters ourselves. Remember, our master in the Gospels was called a servant. And he said himself, he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. The authority, the true authority for us as believers comes in our ability to love and care for and to serve other folks. 
Not to tell them what they ought to be doing all the time. Not to judge them. Now the gospel lesson, we're finally there. Mark 21, chapter 1, 21 through 28. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum, K for Nahum, village of Nahum is the place, and he spent a lot of time there. And according to Mark's account of things, after calling four of his disciples, Jesus began his ministry by teaching in this particular synagogue. And we were told that the folks there were impressed, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and others. Their authority was secondhand. They were passing on what they had learned from other people, what they had seen in other people. Secondhand authority, but Jesus had the authority of his identity as the Son of God. Firsthand authority, and authority based more on who he was than what he had learned along the way. Some anonymous wise person once said, and I love this quote, said that Jesus did not live in the prison house of quotation marks. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen once said, and you could change this little book. He's talking about reading out of books. You could change it now and say, looking at websites, spending time on the internet. But Bishop Sheen said, if you copy something out of one book, it's plagiarism. If you copy something out of two books, it's called research. And if you copy something out of six or more books, you're called a professor. So according to the bishop's good intention, Jesus was no researcher. He was no professor, but he had an air of authority about him based solely on his being the son of the living God, the unique Christ. The gospel lesson continues, and Jesus is casting out an unclean spirit out of a man who happened to be in church that day, happened to be in the synagogue. And once again, the people were amazed and they were startled. What's this? A new teaching with authority. There's that word again. With authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they flee from him. They obey him. Jesus has come into direct contact with the forces of evil and he conquers them by exorcising by casting out this particular demon, this particular evil. And even this demon, and this is maybe another story for another day, recognized him as the son of God. We miss that sometimes. Others miss it. The demon knew who he was. Think with me for a moment about how the response of this unclean spirit, this demon to Jesus. What's the first thing it said? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's a crucial question, isn't it? What do you see as being the limits of your authority, Jesus? What parts of our life are under your authority? In contemporary terms, or more contemporary terms, how about those governments and those who suppress human dignity, those who torture and, and murder their people? How about those who abuse, ignore, or take advantage of children or the poor or the elderly for their own selfish gain? How about those who traffic in 
illegal drugs to destroy the hearts and minds and souls of young folks and others? Is there any area of our individual or social life where his authority should not be valid? Now let's localize for just a moment now and particularize, if that's a real word, this question of authority and the different dimensions of it that the scripture lessons we've talked about today have brought out. And we'll do this by asking two questions. First, who is the central authority for your life? Just fill in the blank there. Put your name in the blank. Even if you've got a middle name that you're not particularly fond of, put your name in the blank. Who is the central authority for your life? And then another question, who is the central authority for the Noonan First United Methodist Church? Is it the Son of God? Is he the focus of our worship experiences and all of our gatherings and all of our thoughts and all of our committee meetings? The decisions we make point to his authority or to our own needs and wants. And I raise these questions not to pass judgment but to simply keep the issue of Jesus' authority at the center of things, where it belongs always. Now, in our own lives, the central authority, is it Jesus Christ? To answer, yes, we must be able to recognize his his authority. Even the demon recognized it. To answer, yes, we must recognize his authority and beyond that, to respond to his authority by offering our whole selves to him. So this is your life and this is my life. And the question is, who's in charge here? Amen.